Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. this topic of artificial intelligence and machine learning, I find it very, very fascinating. It's very common just about, it seems like every time you turn on the TV, you know, movies or commercials for all sorts of things. And it's starting to find its way quite a bit into medical devices too. In fact, FDA has recently put out a press release about artificial intelligence and machine learning and it has the potential to fundamentally transform the delivery of healthcare. I mean, that's a that's a bold statement, folks. But uh, there are some nuances to this. There are some things that you should be aware of if if you have software that incorporates any sort of AI or machine learning. And there are some regulatory implications. And the good news is we got you covered. On this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast, I have my good friend and and common. A guest on the Global Medical Device Podcast, Mike Drews from Vascular Sciences, joining us to talk about AI and machine learning. So please enjoy this episode. Hello, and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host, founder, and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight Guru, John Spear. And, you know, if I would say in the past, uh, I don't know, year or so, maybe a little bit longer, there, there seems to be this trend, and it's not just a trend that's hitting the medical device industry, but I think it's sort of this hot topic that seems to be happening uh, all over the place right now. And the trend that I'm speaking about is this, this idea of artificial intelligence or AI and machine learning and all that sort of thing. And I think it's starting to, to really come more to fruition in the medical device industry. In fact, there were some recent... Uh, statements and, and articles, you know, as recent as early April of 2019 on this topic. And there's some confusion, there's some some trickiness and, and a few other things that we have to figure out from a regulatory perspective how to navigate. So none other than Mike Drews will be joining me on this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. As you know, Mike is with Vascular Sciences and, and he's an expert for these gray area <laughs> regulatory topics. Mike, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, John. All right. So you and I have shared a, f- a few emails. We've had a, a brief conversation about this topic, pretty high level. But there was an, an, a press release or a statement that came out from FDA just a few days ago. And it's about uh, artificial intelligence-based medical devices. So I, I'm, I'm, I know you've read this, uh, but uh, I guess before we dive too deep today, what was sort of your thoughts, or maybe you can give the audience a little bit of context on on what this topic is and, and maybe what it means from a med device perspective. And then, you know, as we chat today, we'll dive into some of the nuances and some of the details. Thanks, John. Always a pleasure to speak with you and your audience, and I agree with you. I think this is a very timely and also very important topic. So the press release coming out of FDA from outgoing FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb that you alluded to a moment ago uh, said, among other things, that these kinds of technologies have the potential to fundamentally transform the delivery of healthcare. And that, to me, John, is a pretty powerful statement, yeah. fundamentally transform the delivery of healthcare. Healthcare, I think that's really, quite frankly, uh, marketing hype. Um, <laughs> I agree in principle 
that it does have the possibility to make changes, both in terms of technology, also regulatory challenges that we'll get into. But fundamentally, transfer tra- transform. I'm not sure. Yeah. One thing to uh, what, what do you think of that statement, John? You know, it is the opening line of that particular press release. So, you know, let's just say for me, it was a good hook because I read further, you know, I read on and, and, uh, you know, some of the things we'll dive into and talk a little bit more about today. But, you know, it's, I'd like to believe a lot of medical devices have the opportunity to fundamentally transform the delivery of healthcare. Uh, You know, maybe AI products will too, but uh, I think there are other devices that, that have that opportunity as well. I would like to believe that as well, but I'm not sure reality is always the case, John, not to be cynical, but aren't the majority of medical devices 510Ks? And does the does 510K have the potential to fundamentally transform healthcare if it's already substantially equivalent or basically the same as something that already exists? Uh, I'll leave that as a rhetorical comment. <laughs> okay, sounds good. <laughs> but I think, you know, on this, this particular topic, I think it is hot. Uh, as far as, and like I said, not just med device, but just in general today. I mean, it seems like every time I, you know, get on the internet or read a story or, you know, see a commercial or this or that, there's AI this and AI that and AI this and AI that. So, so it is timely. Uh, and, and so I, I guess, you know, from an FDA perspective, good on them to, to kind of jump on this and realize that this is coming to a med device. Chances are near you real soon. And, and so, you know, I, I know FDA has, has had a lot of, of initiatives recently, and we'll talk more about that here in a moment. But the, the one thing that I think is interesting uh, is that this is almost being touted or, or proposed that AI and machine learning has an opportunity to help companies to be more proactive with product improvements and I, and I suppose ultimately helping patients. Um, do you agree with that notion? Well, I do, John, but let's take just a half a step backwards for the benefit of our audience, and let's just talk a tiny bit about what we mean when we refer to artificial intelligence or machine learning, or there there's several other phrases that are used synonymously. So to me, as a professional biomedical engineer, the, the, the thing that distinguishes these kinds of technologies from everything else is the ability to learn and adapt and evolve, just like almost in a Darwinian evolution sense, where the device is somehow monitoring itself and making actual improvements in itself such that it it does things better in the future. And that, to me, John, presents not just some regulatory challenges, but also some quality challenges as well. Yeah. When it when we talk about consistency and validation and and so on and so on. So, first and foremost, you know, I'm trying to keep the the technical detail here as simple as possible. But I think by AI in our context, we're talking about the device to to self monitor and and change itself, evolve with as it as it learns more information from real world use. Would you agree with that, John? Yeah, I would agree with that. And and so said it a slightly different way, or maybe just to add on to, to what you stated just a little bit, this implies that that code, if you will, that, that software code is uh, constantly evolving as it, quote, learns uh, and gets more in, intelligence about a particular situation or event or occurrences and that sort of thing. So it's constantly shifting its code base uh, you know, some, somewhat autonomously. And, and so I think, you know, there's, there's some things to your point, you know, it, that, that implies that, um, and, and you know, I guess for me anyway, looking at it, it, it raises some flags, um, you know, some things that 
I would certainly want to address as a quality professional, not the least of which would be, you know, making sure that, that uh, you know, how do I prove that those algorithms, that those things that are changing, how do I know that those things are changing in the right direction, so to speak? Well, that's a great question, John, and I would love to dig into that um, on the quality side. But first, let's talk about the regulatory side, if that's okay. Oh, yeah. Because this brings us to, in my opinion, the first and perhaps the biggest challenge of how do we regulate these technologies. It goes back to something that you and I have talked about many times before, John, and that is a lot of people like to talk about what FDA regulates. What I like to talk about is what FDA does not regulate, and what FDA does not regulate is the practice of medicine. And when we're talking about learning, we're talking essentially about the practice of medicine. In other words, when a surgeon does a procedure and he or she either purposely or accidentally comes up with an improvement and uses that for the future, uh, for future patients, obviously FDA has nothing to do with that because that's the practice of medicine. So FDA doesn't regulate the practice of medicine. That's what all the regulatory textbooks say. That's what all the regulatory consultants say. But that's not completely true. FDA doesn't regulate the practice of medicine when it's practiced by a person. When the practice of medicine is practiced by a device, and this is now where we bring in the AI, now FDA is all over it. So when we're talking about devices with this uh, sort of innate intelligence, if you will, it's the ability to uh, to learn and to evolve. FDA will definitely regulate that, but that's a drastically different kind of a kind of a paradigm than what we've been working on in the past. Does that make sense, John? It, it totally makes sense. And, and as you were sharing that, I was reminded of past conversations that you and I have had both on this podcast and in webinars and and just one-on-one conversations that we've had about changes to uh, a clear device and, you know, what you need to do when your device changes, you know, from not just from a regulatory perspective, but also from a product testing standpoint, from a quality standpoint, you know, all the things that that are required or expected and frankly, just prudent engineering and and best business practices whenever you make a change to something. I mean, in a mechanical world, if I change a component of my device, whether that be the color, the material, whatever the case may be, I have to evaluate the impact of that change. And I have, you know, maybe in some cases, I might have to do some additional product testing to ensure that the product still performs as expected and meets the quality criteria and you know patient safety and all those sorts of things and uh, and it might also mean that I have to do an additional regulatory submission so I, I this is um I don't know if you have the answer but but now we're talking about something that's changing almost without my knowledge on the fly without my ability to assess and evaluate that change before the change is made, it just seems like this is, this is like a regulatory uh, quality product, quality, uh, I don't know, it just seems like some sort of Pandora's box of some sort. Well, let's dig into that Pandora's box a little bit, John, because if we think about it properly, it's not a Pandora's box. As a matter of fact, I see very little here uh, that's new. You know, I coincidentally, I was uh, asked to participate in a conference just a few weeks ago, and one of the topics was was AI and how do we regulate it. And some of the folks were saying how this is so new and different. And I said, with all due respect, I see very, very little here that's new or different, because what you're now starting to get into is the whole concept of change management and how do we do that. So first of all, John, let me just point out for you and your audience that 
we're not talking about devices that are hypothetical that we might have in five or 10 or 25 years. Uh, FDA has already cleared or approved a few uh, devices using um, AI already in the area of detecting retinopathy in the eye, for example, or analyzing CT images. But here's what, what happened. They specifically dumbed down the AI technology. They disabled the AI technology by creating what my software friends call locked algorithms that do not allow the device to continuously learn and adapt. Do you want to guess as to why they did that, John? Uh, well, I have a couple guesses. One might be that um, that that uh, if if they did not lock the algorithms, that that would probably have changed how FDA uh, would have classified their product and would have made their their uh, regulatory pathway maybe a little bit more onerous than they had hoped. That would be my first uh, response to that. Well, that's certainly part of it, John, both regulatory as well as quality, because you and I have talked about before in the area of change management, you know, how much can you change an existing device before you create a new device? When can you change a device and justify doing a letter to file versus if you change it too much um, and you then have to notify the FDA, for example, with the special 510K? These are challenges that have faced this industry now for decades, and we're still not all that great at dealing with them. But now we have the potential to take the manufacturer out of that loop completely and allow the device to do it itself. Well, suffice it to say that that technology uh, is is there, but the regulatory paradigm to, to, to control it is not. So this is unfortunately, John, one of many examples where we have literally dumbed down the technology because our regulatory thinking has not caught up. And this is one of the reasons why this is so important for us in this industry to have these conversations as to how to regulate it. So here's my suggestion on how to handle AI devices for right now, given the current regulatory paradigm that we have, because I think you and some in your audience know me well enough, John, that I refuse to be the regulatory police. I refuse to tell companies what they cannot do. So instead, we have to focus on what we can do. So I do not want to dumb down the technology. I do not want to disable the AI by creating these locked algorithms. That's just going in the wrong direction. Here's my suggestion. We enable the AI, we allow the device to learn, but, but we don't allow the device, at least not right now, to implement the changes themselves. Instead, what the device does is it learns, it collects that information, it comes up with those suggestions, and instead of implementing those suggestions right away, if they send them to the manufacturer, we as the, as the company... We evaluate those changes. We implement those changes if they make sense. We validate those changes. We then decide, using the same principles that you and I have talked about in the past, whether we're going to make this change as a letter to file or as a special 510K. In other words, there's nothing at all new here, John. All we're doing is we're applying the same thinking that we've done before, the regulatory logic, if you will, not the regulation itself, but the regulatory logic, the things that we've done in the past. Eventually, as we build up more experience, as we build up more trust, if you will, with the AI, we can talk about ways to allow the AI-enabled device to implement those changes themselves. But we're not quite there yet, John. You know, when I was thinking about this, it reminded me of this whole debate over self-driving cars. Uh, 
right? Self-driving cars are clearly going to be the future, but we're not quite there yet. There's a lot of people, I suspect you might be one of them, who might be a little hesitant about getting into a self-driving car and letting the car, you know, drive you just, you know, without any input whatsoever. So I think there's a lot of parallels here. So that's my recommendation for the short term, John. Have the the software give us the recommendations, and then we decide to implement them or not. We validate them, and then we either notify FDA or we don't. Uh, What do you think of that suggestion, John, at least in the short term? Well, I, I think in the short term that that, that is a, a pathway that makes a lot of sense. And here's why I think that makes sense. If we do not basically allow this opportunity to really for these devices uh, that are incorporating AI and machine learning to actually collect that information uh, and, and identify opportunities to evolve and change, if we don't create a vehicle for that to happen, then then we'll never be able to leverage the benefits that AI can can provide to medical technologies. We'll, you know, that statement from FDA have the potential to fundamentally transform the delivery of healthcare if we don't enable the, the AI and the machine learning technology to be able to do that, then, then we'll never be able to uh, come close to achieving anything near uh, transforming the delivery of healthcare. So I think, you know, this is a, a new thing. I think, you know, historically speaking, uh, software has been, from a regulatory perspective, uh, very confusing, very challenging. You know, I know FDA has done a lot of work. I mean, even in a traditional 510K, I mean, there are certain expected criteria and behaviors that, that one needs to address if their product contains software or firmware or anything like that, that that needs to be captured as part of that 510k submission. But a lot of the guidances that have been from uh, provided from regulatory bodies, whether that be IMDRF or FDA, on the whole topic of software are not necessarily state-of-the-art. Uh, they're far from uh, current uh, accepted best practices by software developers. And so I think this is a way to kind of try to catch up. And I know um, FDA has done a lot of work on the this their pre-cert uh, pilot program to try to catch up, if you will. I, and I, I guess I'm curious, Mike, have you worked with the pre-cert program or any companies that have gone through that by chance? I have, John, and um, I, I want to share a few thoughts on the pre-cert program in, in just a moment. But just coming back for, for, for a second on what you just said, um, you're right, software does present different challenges. When you look at the regulation from a literal perspective, when you take a literal interpretation of the regulation, but as I hinted at earlier, John, I don't do that. When I focus on the intent of the regulation, what I call the regulatory logic, there really is absolutely nothing new here when it comes to AI or anything else, with the exception of that caveat at the beginning, the ability to to self-learn, and I already gave a solution to that problem. So here's my my uh, second suggestion for my AI friends is let's push AI even a little bit further. Let's have the AI software give the manufacturer a recommendation as to what the change should be, how it should be handled. In other words, uh, letter to file versus special 510K. Have the software tell us if this is going to be an example of change creep. You know, you and I have talked about before, John, this idea of change creep and how problematic it is. How many times can you change an existing medical device before you do need to let FDA know? So, uh, again, when you when you understand or try to understand the intent of the regulation, the regulatory logic, I don't think it's it's that new. 
Okay, so let's come back to your your question about the uh, the pre certification program. Uh, I love this idea in principle, and I've recommended already to FDA that we take it many steps further. For those in the audience that are not familiar with it, this is a program that was created about two years ago uh, in 2017, and it's still a pilot program. There's only, uh, as far as I know, about nine companies that are in it right now. Um, A few of them are actually customers of mine. And the biggest difference here, John, is that the certification goes on the team, not on the device. In other words, as you and all of our audience know, when you bring a new medical device onto the market, you need to get a 510K or de novo or BMA or something. That's on the device. But the pre-cert program, which was originally created for software because of the, the quick iterative nature of the software, it doesn't make sense to have to apply for a new 510K every single week because you're iterating the software so many times. So the idea is instead of certifying the device, you certify the team developing the device. Think about it this way, John. When you get your driver's license, that's a certification on you. And once you get that license, you don't need a special approval from the DMV or anybody to drive from your house to the grocery store because they've already certified you. Right. When a person goes to medical school and graduates, that's the certification for them to allow them to do surgery. They don't need to get permission from a medical board or a hospital in advance every time they want to do a surgery. So that's the metaphor here. The reason why I love this program, John, is because it treats people as professionals. I'm a professional biomedical engineer. I know what the heck I'm doing. When I'm developing a medical device, whether it's a a piece of software, whether it's hardware, whether it's uh, an in vitro diagnostic, whether it's something that's going to go inside somebody's body, I know what the heck I'm doing, and I don't need to be micromanaged by anybody to tell me how to do it. I would love to be able to have that kind of a certification, not just for software, but here's a wackadoodle idea for you, John. For all medical devices, what do you think about the idea of certifying the team or the company uh, as opposed to certifying the device? Well, I think it's an interesting concept. And I and I know the, the companies, I mean, the pre-cert program to me is one of those um, it's a great example. And I love to hear that, that you've had experience with that and that, you know, you've made some recommendations that it, this be more pervasive or, you know, actually continue to, to expand in its application within the agency. But it is a, an example, I think, of, of an FDA program that's a little bit more forward thinking. And, you know, I do like the idea of, you know, extending it just beyond uh, just software as a med device. I mean, why not? Why not extend this to other other companies, other teams, other other opportunities, other product spaces beyond just software as a med device? You know, and and I guess I wonder, Mike, is this a speculatory question? But you know, there's been some some discussion, uh, and I expect we'll see more about this in the coming weeks. But you know, FDA moving away from 820, 21 CFR Part 820, in favor of 1345. You know, maybe this pre-cert program could be a means or a vehicle for for FDA to get some assurance, so to speak, that a company is doing the right things and is a, a properly accredited or certified to be able to do these sorts of things. But yeah, I love the notion of being able to broaden this beyond just SAMD. Well, I do agree with you, John, in the sense that the pre-cert program is one of the very few what I would consider to be new and novel ideas 
floating around in the regulatory world. Let's be honest, John, so much of, of uh, not just what we're talking about today, but what we've talked about in the past is just, you know, um, a reincarnation of what we've done before. The, the, in the in, in, Even in the AI example, the um, discussion document that FDA just put out, uh, a 20-page proposal on regulating AI, to me, that reads almost exactly identical to the special 510K guidance that FDA originally put out in in 1998, so 21 years ago, and then just was updated last year. So the pre-cert program is something very new and different, certifying the team as opposed to certifying the device. As I said, I would love to see it taken further. And, you know, there's a caveat to that, obviously, and that is we should be responsible for our, for our actions. For those of you coming from engineering backgrounds, again, this is not a new idea. This is the concept of getting your professional engineer license, your PE, right? So there's a tremendous amount of precedent in terms of is it going to grow in the future, which is, I think, the gist of your last question, John. Well, I don't know. I, w- I hope that it will. But obviously, we need to have more confidence, just like the self-driving car. It's uh, it's still relatively new, and we need more experience to, to get a, a higher level of confidence. But I'll tell you this, John, and I've said this before, there's no better way to ensure that we have more regulation in the future than if companies and the people working in them continue to do stupid things. And I would say the same thing for the pre-cert program. These nine companies that are part of the pre-cert program now, they have a huge responsibility to make sure that they don't do stupid things. Because if they do, then I can just about guarantee that this pre-cert program will never continue in the future. You know, and and folks will provide a a link to more information about the pre-cert program. But I'm looking at that list, Mike, and and I see some names of some companies that, you know, we wouldn't normally think of as med device companies on that list either. Companies like Apple, Fitbit, Samsung, Verily. You know, so I think it's kind of interesting to see that that this has been uh, embraced by traditionally non-med device companies to uh, basically transition some of the technology that they're working on that might be used in consumer goods or just non-medical device purposes and and using this as a potential uh, vehicle to, to bring some technologies into a medical device indication. Kind of interesting. I think you're right, John. And, uh, you know, as I said before, I don't think it's really appropriate for me to sing out specific companies, but I did mention that several on the list, including a couple that you just mentioned, are customers of mine. And, you know, it amazes me how much here is not new. For example, people for a long time have been asking in the in the software world um, whether a particular software app should be regulated by FDA as a medical device or not. Well, to me, this is no different than any other question. And that is, what is a medical device? Does it fit the CFR definition of a medical device? Whether it's made of physical stuff or lines of code or chemicals or whatever it is, it makes no difference to me. It's form independent. What matters more is the function. What does it do and how does it work? Absolutely. So folks, I want to remind you all, I've been talking with Mike Drews from Vascular Sciences, and we've been talking about this, uh, this topic of regulatory framework around artificial intelligence and machine learning and you know how this applies to software as a med device. Um, certainly, uh, you know, Mike's an expert in this space and an expert with regulatory strategy. So definitely encourage you to, to uh, reach out to him, especially if you're interested in AI and how it can apply to your particular product and, and ways to navigate 
these waters in a way that that allow you to get that product to market, but do so in a way that that's proactive, that's innovative, that's creative. He, he's certainly a one of, if not the best, one things like this. But Mike, I'm just thinking, you know, kind of as we wrap up today's conversation, we've we've sort of talked a little bit esoterically, you know, about some things and what this topic is and and why it it, it could be important. But but I thought, you know, maybe we can wrap up today. If I am a company, uh, an SAMD company, you know, software as med device, or maybe other some other type of technology where I'm incorporating or considering incorporating things like AI and machine learning, do you have any like tangible, practical, pragmatic tips for those listeners on how to embrace and incorporate AI into their products? I do, John. Thanks for the opportunity to share some some final thoughts as we wrap this up. First of all, as I've said now a few times in today's conversation, I don't think there's an awful lot that's really new here when it comes to AI from a regulatory perspective, even though many people seem to think that there is. The one most interesting question to me is this whole concept of self-learning devices, evolving devices, devices that can actually change themselves, and how do we regulate that? And I already gave the short-term solution, and this is what I've told a couple of the AI companies that I work with right now, and that is temporarily disable, uh, well, sorry, not disable, um, but but um, allow your AI software to make the recommendations to you as the manufacturer, but do not allow, at least not yet, the AI software to implement those changes itself. Instead, you evaluate those changes, you validate those changes, then you decide letter to file versus um, notifying the FDA. And then once you do all of that, then you provide some sort of a software update to update the devices that are already in the field. So that's a very tangible recommendation right now. My second recommendation, and this just came up a week or two ago with one of the AI companies that I'm working with, is are AI devices going to learn at their own pace? In other words, if you have a bunch of the same devices out there, they're all learning at their own pace. Some devices might learn faster than others. Or instead, will they learn collectively, kind of like a herd of animals? And if they're going to learn individually, how are they going to communicate that, what they've learned with the other devices that are in the herd? Or are they even going to communicate with the herd? So in this particular company, what we've decided to do is that the manufacturer is going to monitor the herd learning. In other words, the manufacturer is going to monitor each individual horse in the herd or the cow or whatever you want and get the information from that particular animal and then put it all together and go through that validation process and then update the entire herd in sort of a collective way. Right now, what we're having to do, John, is sort of micromanage the herd in order to mitigate the regulatory burden. But eventually, we'll want the herd to be able to learn and implement those changes itself. But we're not quite there yet, just like we are with the self-driving car. Yeah. And the last thing that I wanted to mention, John, and I would love to hear your thoughts on this as we wrap this up, is from the quality perspective, what does consistency mean? In other words, to me, John, consistency is sort of the antithesis of learning. Consistency means that we keep doing something the same way, whereas continuously improving something is based on that, that learning. 
just at this conference that I was at recently, uh, there was somebody there that said consistency does not mean that you do something the same way over and over. It rather it means that it's continuous improvement. You're 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 changing things, but how do we reconcile that from a quality perspective, and how do we know that those changes aren't going to be problematic in the future. So I don't know if yeah. this is something that you want to get into now, John, but as a quality guy, I would love to hear your thoughts on that. <laughs> I feel like I'm stepping into a, a loaded topic, but I'll, I'll do so. I'll jump into it uh, willingly. I mean, it is, um, you know, especially if you consider sort of uh, some of the standard state of the art uh, with respect to traditional software, I mean, there's a there's still a lot of code review that's happening. Uh, that's you know maybe peer to peer review. There's there are you know, maybe uh, unit testing that's done either in line with development or you know again maybe uh, by a, a QA or a testing a software testing group. Um, and, and there's you know integrations testing. It's there's constant you know a lot of Agile software methodology best practices are, are at least professed to incorporate quality as sort of the, the development cycle in and of itself. Um, but at the same time, you know, and a lot of companies are embracing the automated testing for different parts and pieces and that sort of thing. So it is kind of interesting to think about, you know, I, I guess the classic, this is a very dated approach, but a lot of people think in order for me to ensure quality, I have to quote inspect it. And a lot of times it involves manual intervention or, or a human looking at something, so to speak, and in you know uh, conventional wisdom, and you know folks more times than not, conventional wisdom is wrong. But conventional wisdom is, oh, I can improve quality by adding additional inspection steps. But that is, there's plenty to to corroborate that that is uh, a fool's errand to think that adding more inspections is going to improve your quality. We won't get into that. But well, I, perhaps John, uh, since we focus so much on the regulatory challenges of AI, maybe we'll have a future podcast discussion on some sure. of the quality challenges of AI because I think it does. It does pose some interesting quality questions. It does. The last piece of pragmatic advice that you asked me for that I wanted to share um, is right out of FDA's announcements in the last couple of weeks. And to me, this is such a no-brainer. This is such a statement of the obvious. This is another example of how there's nothing new here. One of FDA's recommendations to manufacturers, and it's a good recommendation. It's my recommendation, too. And that is take it to the FDA as a premium. And, you know, I mean, Geez, do we really need FDA telling people now in AI, come and talk to us in advance of your submission? That's just, you know, to me, that's just common sense. Yeah. But bottom line, I would wrap up my part of the conversation, John, and you can offer any final thoughts if you would like. When it comes to new technologies, whether it's AI or 3D printing or uh, tissue engineering or nanotechnology, new, new technologies require new ways of thinking. And one of my frustrations with our industry, as well as with the FDA, is we're constantly using these old regulatory paradigms, paradigms that were intended to be used for old kinds of technologies, and we're trying to change them. We're trying to morph them to fit these new technologies like AI. In some cases, that works. In many cases, it doesn't. We really need new ways of thinking in the regulatory world to go along with new ways of thinking in our technology. To me, John, that's where the real exciting stuff happens. And we, as companies working in these spaces, we can take the lead. We don't have to wait for FDA to tell us what to do. You take it from here, John. No, absolutely. That's spot on. And I I love that statement. And, 
And folks, you know, certainly uh, as you are, you know, if, especially if you're a software as a med device company or a software company that's considering uh, venturing into the med device space, I mean, this is probably going to be a bit of a new world for you because and, and it's, on the surface, it's going to seem like the opposite of what you're trying to do as a, an agile, progressive, uh, you know, best practice software company. And I trust trust me, and and hopefully Mike, you know, trust him as well. But realize that that um, you know regulations, uh, especially when you're talking about development of a device, I would say they're a framework. You know, they they sh- they're not dictating how you do things. They're not dictating your methodology methodology. They're not dictating this pre- specific type of product development approach you take. I know sometimes people hear, oh my gosh, if I'm a medical device, I have to follow a quote waterfall or a phase-based approach. Simply not true. There is important parts of your any development, whether it's software, mechanical, electromechanical, there are things that are important. You should be capturing the requirements of your product. You should be assessing uh, from a verification standpoint, does your device meet those requirements. You should also be assessing whether or not your product meets the needs of the end user. Did you design the product correctly? Did you design the right product? Folks, that is Design Controls 101. And good news, we have you covered at Greenlight Guru. This is what we do all day, every day with the Greenlight Guru software platform. So if you're new to MedDevice or even if you are have been in MedDevice for a long, long time, I would encourage you to go check out what we're doing at www.greenlight.guru can learn more about our software platform and actually how it's going to help you embrace what's expected and what's important from a design control, from a risk, and, and eventually from a quality management system. That's why we're here. I want to thank my guest, Mike Drews with Vascular Sciences. As always, I love talking to him about these exciting topics and regulatory, especially those topics that are a little bit gray and maybe a little bit ambiguous for folks. He has clarity. He can provide clarity. And the good news is it's not a one-size-fits-all answer. He figures out the right path for your product, for your right, the right path for your technology. So reach out to him, learn more about how he might be able to help you. Folks, as always, if you have suggestions, comments, ideas, things that you want to hear us talk about on the podcast or cover on a webinar, always reach out to us. Our our lines of communication are always open. So please reach out to us. We'd love to hear from you. And uh, I'm going to wrap up this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host, founder, and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight Guru, John Spear. And you have been listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast. <laughs>